The following is provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu. Well, good morning. This morning is our final session of our annual conference on marriage, family, and community, and the final opportunity we have to listen to Dr. Paul Tripp. I just, uh, on behalf of the college, Dr. Tripp, I want to thank you for coming and sharing these last three days with us. I have been personally blessed by your ministry. I've been greatly encouraged in talking with others about the fruit that your ministry is already born in uh, much of our thinking and, and, and hopefully in our acting. Uh, but I just want to thank you personally for coming. And without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our speaker for this evening, for this morning and the final session of our conference, Dr. Paul Tripp. Well, it's been a uh, real honor and privilege for uh, me uh, to be with you. I really do uh, mean that, and uh, I'm sorry I have to leave. If you've noticed me craning my, my neck, I'm looking at that little clock back there when I'm speaking. With my eyesight, they could have just glued a watch to the wall, and it would have been as helpful. So I know that it does tell time back there, but it's not too helpful. Well, I want to do this final piece with you this morning and ask the question, okay, what is it that God calls you to in your relationships? What is his big kingdom plan? We've talked about the claustrophobic confines of your own little self-defined world and the fact that you and I do love people and we have a wonderful plan for their lives. And, and so we want to we wanna look finally at God's plan and God's purpose. God has got you in this room this morning because he's going to give you an opportunity by his grace to get on his agenda page. Because I can say this to you because I do get to leave in a few minutes. <laughs> there are people on this room, in this room who are decidedly not on God's agenda page. How's that for being honest? And, and this is an opportunity to think about that. I want to I wanna start with my own story. I was a very angry man. The problem was I didn't know I was an angry man. My wife knew I was an angry man. My kids knew I was an angry man. I was a pastor. I was particularly skilled in my counseling at recognizing angry men. Sort of makes sense, doesn't it? But I had no clue that I was an angry man. Luella, my wife, would come to me and she did it very patiently and, and would seek to point out to me failures in my love for her and ways that that anger was impacting our relationship. And, and I would wrap my robes of righteousness around me and tell her what a great husband she had. I'm sort of a domestic guy. I don't mind doing things around the house. I've always done the majority of the cooking in our family. And I would tell her that I thought her problem was discontent, and I would pray for her. 
she liked that. There was a moment, and this is embarrassing to admit, where I got on a roll and I actually said this to my wife. 95% of the women in our church would love to be married to a man like me. How's that for humility? My wife very sweetly informed me that she was in the 5%. I was a man headed for disaster, and I didn't even know it. I was coming home with my brother Ted from a few days much like the days that we've had together, except I was a person in the crowd. And we were driving up the turnpike in Pennsylvania, and my brother Ted said, you know, Paul, we probably ought to make what we've learned practical to our own lives. Why don't you start? <laughs> and Ted began to ask me questions, and as he asked me questions, it was like God was ripping down curtains, and I was seeing myself like I'd never seen myself before, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I couldn't believe what I was hearing myself say. It was embarrassing. It was humbling. It was remorse-producing. I saw for the first time that angry man. I am deeply persuaded I would have never gotten there by myself. I couldn't wait to get home and talk to Luella. Got in the house around 10.30 and I, I'm a bit of a goof. I always come in the house doing something silly and I came in seriously and Luella knew that there was something up. I said, we really need to talk. We sat down. I said to her, I know for years you've tr been trying to talk to me about my anger and I've never been willing to listen to you. I think for the first time tonight, I can honestly say I'm willing to listen, I'm willing to hear. I'll never forget what happened next. Luella burst into tears. She told me that she loved me and she talked for two hours. <laughs> and in those two hours, God began a process of completely undoing and redoing the heart of this man. Now, notice the operative word. The word was process. It wasn't an event. I wasn't zapped by lightning. In many ways, it was a painful process. But I will never forget the afternoon when I was coming down from the upstairs of our house. We lived in a house that had a staircase that that came down, there was a landing, he turned and went into the living room. And as I hit the landing, I could see Luella sitting with her back to me. She was sitting in the living room, looking out the windows, waiting for some of our children to come home from school. And as I looked at her, I couldn't remember the last time I'd experienced that old, ugly, life-dominating anger toward her. Now, I'm not saying that I had reached a level of my sanctification that I was incapable of a moment of irritation, but that old dominant anger was gone. I walked up behind Luella and I put my, my hands on her, her shoulders and she looked up, me, up at me like this as you would have with someone's behind you. And I looked down at her and I said, you know, Luella, I'm not angry at you anymore. And she looked up with tears in her eyes, 
And she said, I know, I know. And we stood there together and sort of laughed and cried at what God had done in our relationship. Now that story has everything to do with what God wants you to be part of in your relationship. That story has everything to do with what is on God's relational agenda page. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is one of those diagnostic passages that I've talked about where, where the Bible is so accurate in the way it talks about life and accurate in the way it diagnoses our problems. I'm going to read 3 through 9 of 2 Peter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure... They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. (coughs) Now, if you're going to understand this passage, you have to understand that this passage has inverted logic in it. I don't mean by that that the passage doesn't make sense. What I mean is you really have to get the import of the bottom of the passage for the top of the passage to make sense to you. And so I want you to look in your Bibles to verse 8, because here's the diagnosis. Peter says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is proposing that it's possible to be a believer to actually have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, but have a life that's ineffective and unproductive. Your life is not producing the full range of the expected harvest of the fruit of faith. You're ineffective and you're unproductive. Now, when you hear that kind of diagnosis in Scripture, you ought to immediately ask the question, who are these people that Peter is talking about? Well, he's surely not talking about some loser kind of Christian who just doesn't ever get it. Think about this. Be honest this moment. Who in this room could say, in every way possible, in every day possible, my life shows the complete range of of the full harvest of the fruit of faith. Everyone in this room, somehow, some way, is ineffective and unproductive. And Peter says you're ineffective and unproductive because there are character qualities that are supposed to rule your heart. And when those character qualities rule your heart... They will make you effective and productive in the place where God puts you. My heart isn't always ruled by love. It's not always ruled by goodness. 
It's not always ruled by kindness. It's not always ruled by patience and perseverance. Sometimes my heart is ruled by selfishness and greed and jealousy and self-righteousness and lust. And when my heart is ruled by those things, I respond in a way that's not productive and not effective. This diagnosis reaches to us all. Now look with me at verse 9. Because here's the ticket in this passage. Peter says, But if anyone does not have them, what does the them refer to? The character qualities. He is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Here's what Peter says the issue is. It's one of the central issues of your Christian experience. The issue is identity. When you forget who you are, you will quit living the way that God has called for you to live. I am deeply persuaded as I get to travel the world, and I'm in, I'm in great churches all the time, but I'm deeply persuaded that there is an endemic identity amnesia in the body of Christ. We tend to lose sight of who we are. And when we lose sight of who we are, we do not live in the way that God has called for us to live in the situations and relationships and locations where He has sovereignly placed us. Now, this passage actually hints at two pieces of this identity. First, it says, you have forgotten that you've been cleansed from your past sins. I need to humbly hold on to my identity as a sinner. Yes, the power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin still remains. And there's a way in which that sin rears its ugly head in every situation, in every location of your life. Now, it's hard for us to admit that. Because we want to embrace the personal delusion that we are actually more righteous than we are. And that self-righteousness is a very strong and sturdy thing. Think about this. When, when you do something wrong, uh, and because you have a, a heart of flesh in you now rather than the heart of stone, when you do something wrong, your conscience bothers you. You've had that experience. And when your conscience bothers you, you only have one of two choices. Either you admit that what you did, said, thought, desire, chose was wrong, and you place yourself once again under the justifying mercies of Christ, or 
you erect some system of self-justification that makes that wrong acceptable to your conscience. We're so good at doing that. That's what I did with Luella for years. My problem was not just my sin. My problem was my righteousness. When God began to open up my eyes, I didn't start by confessing my sin. I start, started with confessing years and years and years of false righteousness. I would yell at my children. Embarrassing to admit. And I'd tell myself I'd spoken as one of God's prophets. You'll gossip and you'll tell yourself it was just a very extended personal prayer request. You'll lust. You'll tell yourself you're just a man who enjoys beauty. You'll be on an ugly quest for personal power and you'll tell yourself that you're exercising God-given leadership gifts. It's so hard to actually stand before God and confess that your need is as deep and profound and pervasive and comprehensive as it actually is. Can I tell you how great your need is? You need the grace of Christ this morning every bit as much as you needed it the first day that you believed. You need him moment by moment by moment to rescue you from you. But there's a second piece of this identity that I need to hold on to. It's my identity as a child of his grace. As a recipient of the awesome grace that can only be found in him. I love what, how Peter characterizes this. He says that he has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. For you grammarians in the room, it's a perfect tense. It's an action in the past with continuing results to the future. His divine power has given us, now listen to this, everything we need. Now follow with me here. For life and godliness. Why does Peter use two words? Peter uses two words because he knows his audience. If he had said he has given us everything we need for life, we would tend to substitute the word eternal in there and say, isn't it wonderful? God has given me everything I need to someday spend eternity with him. That's true. That's wonderful. It just doesn't happen to be what Peter's talking about. And so he adds a second word. God has given me everything I need for godliness. What is godliness? It's a God-honoring life between the time I come to Christ and the time I go home to be with Him in the situations, locations, and relationships where He has placed me. Now, why don't you hear me say this? I am deeply persuaded that this bifactoral identity is the soil in which a healthy Christian experience grows. 
And you've got to have both of these. You've got to hold on to the reality of your sin or you won't be excited about grace. Grace is only interesting to a sinner. And as you hold on to the reality of your sin, you must be encouraged by grace or you'll be paralyzed and afraid and discouraged at the specter of who you actually are. It's the tension, it's the complementary harmony of this bifactoral identity. My identity as a sinner and my identity as a child of the awesome transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that produces a life that's effective and productive because I go into relationship with you knowing what I'm capable of but knowing also of my potential in Christ. And I don't live naively with you because I know how nasty this can, di- can get because I know we're sinners, but I don't le- uh, uh, live with you avoidantly and discouragedly because I know how great the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is. I've experienced that grace. I am deeply, deeply thankful that God put me in that car that evening with a man who loved me enough to get inside of my fences. Without that hour-long drive, hear me say this, I'm deeply persuaded I wouldn't be standing in front of you this morning. Sometimes I wonder if my marriage would have been able to sustain it. That's the glorious, transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to turn real quickly with you to one more passage. Because this passage now connects what we've said to your relationships. Hebrews 10. I'm going to begin reading with verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Let me just break apart this passage quickly for you. Verses 19 through 23 are one of the clearest calls in the New Testament to live with confidence based on the gift of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
embracing the hope of that grace and living with confidence based on it. Verses 26 through 31 are one of the New Testament's most serious calls, strong calls to be serious about sin. It says things like insulting the Spirit of grace. Every time you, you minimize your sin, you insult the Spirit of grace who wrote the, the story of history in order that the Lord Jesus would come and redeem us from our sins. Notice in this passage, you have the same two pillars of identity, 19 through 23, my identity as an object of grace, 26 through 31, my identity as a sinner. Now, look in your Bibles at what's in verse, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Here is this discussion of identity, my identity in grace, my identity as a sinner, and right in the middle of that discussion is this call to a community. Why? Did the writer of Hebrews have a bit of a senior moment? you know, forgot what he was talking about, started talking about community, and then remembered and got back to his, his topic. Hear this this morning. Your walk with God is a community project. You were not to design, designed to do this thing we call Christianity on your own. And so in the middle of this reminder of my identity as a sinner and my identity as a child of grace is a call to community. I need people in my life who will lovingly and gently remind me of my sin. And I need people in my life who will remind me of how great and how glorious and how powerful God's grace is because there will be moments when I lose sight of my sin and when I do, I'm in trouble. And there will be moments when I lose sight of God's grace and when I do, I'm in trouble. And I need people who will gently and lovingly and perseverantly remind me of this bifactorial identity. There'll be moments when you're overwhelmed, when life seems too big, too difficult, too hard, too demanding. And that moment, you need to be reminded that you are not alone because you have been in, indwelt by the powerful Spirit of God. There's grace for what you're facing. And there are moments when you'll be shockingly self-righteous and headed for trouble. And you need someone to gently help you to see yourself in the mirror of God's Word so that you can see yourself with accuracy. Your walk with God is designed by your Redeemer to be a community project. Here's what everyone in this room needs. You need to live in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. You must not try to do this by yourself. Because invariably, you will lose sight 
of one of those identities. There are people in this room who need to be reminded of your sin because you're in the danger of thinking of yourself as way more righteous than you actually are. There are people in this room who are defeated and discouraged because you've lost sight of the presence and provision and power of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with you moment by moment. And someone needs to show you Jesus again because your problems have loomed so large you're not seeing him in your life. Hear me say this. Your relationships never did belong to you. Your relationships are created and owned by your Savior. And He has a purpose for those relationships. His purpose is that His glorious plan of rescue and restoration would be completed as you provide community for one another. Something more than looking for people who I think are cool, who can provide for me fun relationships. Something more than mutual interest. Something more than the energy of romance. I know that if I'm ever going to hold on to my identity as a sinner and my identity as an object of God's grace, I need people who will again and 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 and once again remind me of who I am. I would ask you this morning, are you living in that kind of community? If you're not, in some way, whether it's the side of self-righteousness or the side of fear and defeat, your life will end up ineffective and unproductive. Jesus owns your relationships, and he calls you to live an intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. God help us to live on his agenda page and not our own. Let's pray. Lord, it is so easy for us to own our relationships for our own purpose. It's so easy for us to forget who we are and to slip off of the slope, onto the, down the slope of self-righteousness or down the slope of fear and defeat. Lord, how much we need people in our lives who you have placed there to remind us of how deep our need for you is and remind us how grand and glorious your provision is. Lord, give us the desire to pursue that kind of community with one another for the sake of our rescue and restoration and for the honor of your glory. 
In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. The proceeding was provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu.